You're listening to Truly Criminal, the home of true crime. To see the video version of this case, including the footage and photos, you can find us on YouTube. Just search for Truly Criminal. We're in Newfoundland, in Canada, for today's case. Back in 2016, when it was home to 46-year-old Marcel Reardon. Marcel was from a huge family, with two sons himself, three brothers and an older sister, to whom he was particularly close, and nieces who he doted on. His sister Jacqueline said her brother was the class clown, always wanting to make everyone laugh, just by being goofy. He was never afraid to make himself look silly in order to cheer people up. Marcel lived alone downtown after moving about quite a bit. He hadn't felt very settled anywhere for a while, but had recently found a new little apartment, which seemed to be working out for him. A big reason he was always looking for somewhere new and never quite felt at home was because in September 2015, tragedy hit the Reardon family. They lost their mother Evelyn to cancer, and Jacqueline said that for Marcel, who was the closest to her, the loss had really taken a toll on him. Jacqueline said that he had hit the bottle hard, leaning on it to numb his pain. Over the months since her deaths, Marcel's drinking had increased to a dangerous point, and he was spiralling into a terrible place, losing more and more control. He knew it was happening and was trying to pull it back, but was finding it tough now in the midst of an addiction. In early May 2016, several 911 calls were made about Marcel, saying he was intoxicated and acting aggressively. Although when the officer got there, they deemed there wasn't enough to make an arrest, and Marcel seemed to be okay. One of his friends had also run into him at a downtown soup kitchen. She was ahead of him in the queue, and he ran up to her asking to cut in front. Karen, can I jump ahead of you? I haven't slept and I haven't eaten in three days, he said. His family knew he was struggling, but not to this extent. On the evening of May 7th, 2016, Marcel visited his sister Jacqueline and brother Scott for dinner. The mood was sombre, as the aim of the meetup was to put flowers together as a tribute for their mother, something Marcel was finding tough. But the day went as smoothly as it could, and as Marcel said goodbye, they arranged to see each other a few days later for a family barbecue. He told them he was feeling more positive as he had signed up to a welding course so he could get himself back into work and into a good routine. This was great and encouraging news for his family. He hugged Jacqueline and headed off shouting, Love you, Jackie, as he went. Don't forget to call me later, she shouted back. Just a few hours later, Marcel was sadly back on the police's radar again. He was arrested for breaching an order not to consume alcohol and officers had picked him up in a subway begging people for food. He was held in the lockup for his own safety, and when they were happy he had sobered up, they released him at about 1pm the following day. He left the building in his red sweater, a jacket and his cargo bottoms. He pulled a newspaper out of his jacket and walked off into town. May 9th, 2016. Authorities responded to a call from the Harbourview Apartments at 91 Brazil Street. The building superintendent, Jack, had called 911 when a resident had alerted him to something near the stairs to the rear of the building. Someone was lying on the ground, almost tucked under the steps. 
and the resident thought maybe they were sleeping rough and had taken shelter there overnight. But as they got closer, they saw a pool of blood and what looked like brain matter and bone nearby. The man was wearing a red sweater and cargo bottoms, and inside one of the pockets was a wallet. The wallet contained a folded-up birth certificate. This confirmed that they had found the body of Marcel Reardon. He had been beaten to death. There were marks in the mud near his body, which showed he had been dragged there, so where he had actually been killed, along with the why, wasn't clear. On May the 9th, 2016, at approximately 9.35 a.m., RNC officers with Patrol Services Division, the Criminal Investigation Division, and the Forensic Identification Services responded to the report of a sudden death in the area of Brazel Street in St. John's. Based on the results of the autopsy performed by the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner, the RNC is confirming that the cause of death has been ruled as a homicide. The victim of the homicide has been identified as Marcel Reardon, at this time, there have no, been no arrests made, and the investigation is ongoing. The RNC Major Crime Unit would like to thank the media, members of the public, for their assistance so far in this ongoing homicide investigation. We encourage to ask people to come forward with any information, to contact the RNC at 729-8000, to contact Crime Stoppers if they choose at 1-800-222-8477, and they can also provide information anonymously to Crime Stoppers at nlcrimestoppers.com. How did Marcel Reardon die? The circumstances surrounding the man's death, Mr. Reardon's death, is part of the investigation, and we're not going to be releasing that information at this time. Was there a weapon used? Again, um, with regards to a weapon, uh, it's still part of the ongoing investigation. That information is of evidentiary value, so we will not be releasing it at this so time. So you can't say if you've recovered anything in the way of a weapon? We can't say at this time. Do you believe he was killed um, at Harborview Apartments or on that grounds, or is it possible that that was just a dump site and there's another crime scene? Again, the circumstances with regards to the scene would be of evidentiary value, and we can't comment on it this time. Say no arrests have been made, but are there any suspects? Are you looking for anyone? We do not have any suspects at this time. However, we're continually we're continuing to actively investigate the matter, and we ask that if anybody has any information on this death, Contact the RNC at 729-8000 or Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-TI. From searching his name and working out the last known place he was living, the apartment he was found by had no links to him at all. More frustratingly still, the camera that was directly above where everything had happened wasn't working. Near to Marcel's body, however, they bagged up some cigarettes and a lighter, as well as an empty beer bottle. The chief medical examiner in Newfoundland and Labrador since 1996 said that Marcel's injuries were some of the most damaging he had seen in all his years, so bad in fact that his family were not allowed to see him. The wounds were largely to the back of his head and were so severe it was impossible to determine how many times he had actually been hit, but it appeared that a hammer had been used. His blood alcohol level was about four times the legal limit. Authorities said they had seen a lot in their jobs before, but this case was particularly gory, disturbing and draining for them. A lot of stories about him moving around from place to place in St. John's, having some problems with alcohol, problems with drugs. How, how did all of that happen? Jim? I don't know how it all happened, but I know, like I just said in my 
with my uh, writing here that he don't, he lived he lived a life that we all weren't accustomed to, that not everybody was accustomed to. So when it comes to his alcohol, um, I don't know how much he was into it in the past, but coming down here after my mom passed is when he, from my understanding, is when he got more into the alcohol. He lived with us for six months. We never had any issues with him at all. If he did have a six-pack, he'd drink it, he'd be quiet, we wouldn't have no issues. And I mean, it was me and uh, Scott lived there, my children lived there, we never ever had any issues with him. So in the last year, how much contact would you have with him? How often did you see him? I used to see him about once a month and he'd call 20, 20 times a day. <laughs> For what? Just to have a conversation. Ask me how I'm doing or what I'm doing. And the same here? Just normal conversation. Same here. He would call all the time. And he just wanted to talk. Had you heard of the, the murder in St. John's or a body being found in St. John's before the police approached you? I had read on Facebook. I had seen an article that had stated that uh, the body of a young man was found. So you never, it never occurred to you that it was Marcel? No. I kind of went to like a body shake and couldn't breathe and it's like okay seriously who did it like my first thought was who did it who did it that's was it who, who did it i walked out in the kitchen and see two rnc officers there i was in shock i think i still am like i'm still in denial uh, yeah. still waiting for that phone call from me. yep me too when the phone rings at a certain time in late time and it comes up private number i i i think even though no marcel's gone it's like yeah. marcel's caught up in my opinion, what's making it a little harder for them is that they didn't get to see him. Not even for a minute. They weren't allowed because there was too much damage done to him. An officer who had been patrolling the Shamrock City area the previous night said that he had given Marcel another warning for being drunk and disorderly outside a bar. This was at 8pm, just over 12 hours before he was found dead. The bar in question remembered him and could also point police to the people he was drinking with, Kevin O'Brien and Jessica Peach. They were actually even still outside the bar loitering around. The pair said they were drinking with Marcel along with a woman called Anne Norris, but they had left him at around 1am and hadn't seen him after this. They were asked to come in and answer some questions at the station and they said they were happy to. Both Kevin and Jessica had the same story. On the day of May the 8th, they had been walking around the streets, asking people for spare change. Marcel soon tagged along with them. At around 5pm, he briefly left the group to go and get some belongings, telling them he would meet them later. As he left, Anne Norris joined Kevin and Jessica. Jessica knew Anne fairly well, but Kevin did not. He described her as friendly and attractive, and they got on well. Kevin and Anne went to Anne's apartment just before 8pm, before heading back downtown where Marcel joined them. At this point, Marcel was far more intoxicated than they were, being loud and causing them to feel uncomfortable. Marcel had been drinking rum, vodka, beer, and had also taken some unknown pills. He started urinating in the streets before falling over and breaking a glass bottle inside his pocket. Kevin said it was upsetting, alarming, and clearly getting out of control. Jessica and Kevin wanted to distance themselves, and they had last seen him at about 1am. The time frame for when he was killed was now getting smaller. So, where did he go? Officers asked the pair. Anne had told them she would get them a taxi and take him to her apartment for some drinks there. Her building was Harbour View Apartments. 
Police now needed to talk to Anne Norris. And to their shock, hers was a name they actually knew, but for nothing even remotely bad. A lot of Anne's life had revolved around sports, and she was called a star athlete by people. She was frequently in the local papers and on the news for her and her team's achievements. She was a former basketball player, having played on the Newfoundland and Labrador under-19s team, and at the Junior National Championships, and at the Canada Games. At the age of just 14, she was a top contender for a spot on the national karate team, soon gaining a black belt. She had attended the University of Prince Edward Island, and all seemed to be on the up for her. But now, years later, she had dropped off the athletics radar, and things had taken a turn. She had been charged with assault and threatening people, and had been in and out of various mental health clinics. They pulled her in for questioning too. She was cooperative and told the police that she had taken Marcel back to hers, but he had refused to go inside, as he wanted to carry on drinking in town. She had tried to coax him in, hoping they could have a few drinks there, and he might just fall asleep, but Marcel wasn't having any of it. He wandered off, looking to get into a nightclub. She then went back into town and rejoined Kevin and Jessica at about 3.30am. She said she didn't see Marcel again and was shaken up by what had happened to him, especially as this was just outside of her building. She wondered if Marcel had changed his mind and gone back to hers, realising he wasn't going to get in anywhere and that sleeping it off was the best thing he could do, but he had been met with someone outside that had maybe tried to rob him, or he had got into a drunken argument that had ended terribly. Anne was upset and asked if she could leave. Officers didn't have any more questions, so they let her go. Fortunately, the streets were lined with cameras and they were making appeals for anyone that had been in the area at that time to come forward, but no one had seen anything. One camera from outside the bar showed Anne, Marcel and Kevin walking about. They were all by the taxis just as they had said and it was 12.44am. Marcel was wearing the same red sweater and appeared to be staggering and falling over, with Anne trying to help him up at one point. Anne then stopped to tell Kevin that she was taking Marcel back to hers, before she and Kevin turned back on themselves, walking away from Marcel. Marcel stumbled into the back area of the bars to some stairs. The pair helped him walk to the taxi, and Anne got into the front seat. Kevin said goodbye to Anne through the window, and Anne and Marcel both drove off, leaving Kevin at the bar. This confirmed all the timeline so far, and the taxi driver could prove that he had dropped them both off at Anne's apartment building. Kevin and Jessica stayed in town, buying a few things from a shop, and bar hopping until about 3.30am, when they met back up with Anne, just as Anne had said. But now, she was wearing different clothes. Anne asked if she could take Jessica's backpack, and she handed it over. By this time, Jessica was very intoxicated, so she waited around while Kevin and Anne walked to get some cigarettes down by the harbour. Kevin asked Anne why she had gone back with Marcel, and she said he was being a little bit of a dick that night. It was a mistake. While Kevin smoked on the edge of the harbour, he heard splashing around. He turned to see Jessica's backpack floating in the water. Anne said they needed to stay and watch it sink before they left. 
Anne, Kevin and Jessica then all headed to Anne's apartment to sleep. Just a few hours later, when everyone woke up, Anne told them they both had to get out. And as they were leaving, they ran into police officers and yellow tape outside the front of the building. They had no idea the person they had been with just hours before was lying dead just a few feet away from them. The backpack was very odd, and it could not be overlooked that Marcel was found at Anne's apartment building. They needed to locate this backpack, and, to their surprise, they found it pretty easily. Inside the bag was some rope and some light-coloured jeans, which were wrapped around a hammer. Inside the front pocket, they found a wallet, which linked to Jessica Peach. How Anne got everything in there without anyone seeing, or if they did, is not known. There still wasn't enough to make an arrest, so detectives placed Anne under surveillance, while a search warrant for her apartment was obtained. They also realised that before Marcel was killed, Anne was spotted hiding another backpack in a dumpster. This contained two cleavers, hammer, some more rope, a mallet and a flashlight. There were also a load of cleaning products inside as well. It was the same hammer that was located in the harbour, and the hammer they now believed was the murder weapon. They finally got the search warrant they needed and entered her apartment, which was almost totally empty. But it didn't look like she was moving out. It just looked like she lived there with nothing in it. The apartment superintendent, Jack, said she hadn't been there long, a matter of days, in fact. He had met her on the 4th of May when she applied for one of the spaces. Her social worker had dropped off a cheque to pay the deposit, and Jack learned that she had just left a psychiatric care facility. When it came to moving in on the 6th of May, Jack said Anne was extremely nervous and awkward and had turned up with just three bags of clothes and a teddy bear. He said he felt really bad for her, so he got her some couch cushions to sleep on and a blanket to put over her window. Some of the residents chipped in to get her some toiletries too. Jack said she was very quiet and polite and he was beyond shocked that she could be involved in something like this. In one of the rooms, they found a light-coloured scarf that she was wearing on the night Marcel had died, and this had specks of blood on it. In her bathroom bin, they found something so crucial, it would take Anne from being a person of interest to the only suspect in Marcel's murder. A Walmart receipt, time-stamped at 10.40pm on the very night she had been with Marcel, and just hours before he would have been killed. The receipt showed that a purchase was made for a knife and a hammer, and, sure enough, the cameras at Walmart confirmed this. The cashiers described her as odd, and her behaviour unsettling. It was now the 13th of May, and, unbelievably, the police that had Anne under surveillance suddenly called the station and said that she had returned to the same Walmart and was browsing the tools section again. Backup was now on the way and everyone was worrying that there could be a risk to someone in the store. 
as she was waiting to pay, the police team arrived, ready to place Anne Norris under arrest for the murder of Marcel Reardon. She was soon charged with first-degree murder. Anne didn't try to deny anything and admitted that she had hit Marcel over the head several times that morning, but she wasn't giving anyone a reason as to why. She said she had killed him at her apartment and dragged his body under the stairs before running back into town to meet with Kevin and Jessica and, unbeknownst to them, to dispose of the evidence. Marcel's family said they couldn't believe that Anne had done this all by herself. Marcel was a big man and they doubted her ability to be able to drag him and hide him herself, but police said they weren't looking for anyone else in the case, and Anne said it was all on her. A hearing was held to find whether there would be enough evidence to send this to trial, and it was determined that there was. Things moved quickly and it took just four hours to select the jury members. The now 30-year-old's murder trial began on January 22, 2018. I was in contact with the accused probably an hour or so ago. Mr. Buckingham spoke with her via telephone. I spoke with her in person about 10 to 15 minutes before the matter was called. Your Honor, this is Jonathan McDonald's. At this time, details are scarce. We really can't offer much in the way in terms of the details, but we can say that we have been retained by her and we will be representing her going forward. Despite admitting to killing him, Anne Norris pleaded not guilty and her team was pushing for her to be found not criminally responsible. An expert testified that Anne had spoken to him and he believed she had schizophrenia. He said that she had seen Marcel as a threat for some reason that night. From what she had told him, Marcel had been sat on the steps outside, possibly even falling asleep or passing out, his back to the door. Anne, who was upstairs in her apartment, got scared that Marcel was going to hurt her. She grabbed the hammer she had just bought, crept out behind him and beat him to death. He said in her mind she was acting on some sort of preemptive self-defence, but the prosecution were pushing for a first-degree murder conviction. They said the evidence presented showed that she had clearly planned a very deliberate killing. She admitted she had kept hitting Marcel until she was sure he was dead, showing she knew she was going to kill him but continued her attack. They said he was very drunk and incapacitated, unable to fight her off or even really know what was happening until it was too late. And if it was some sort of self-defence, why hadn't she called for help after the fact and alerted someone? Instead, she hid him away and disposed of the evidence to cover her tracks. She had then continued to lie to the police in her first interview. The prosecution argued that the preemptive hiding of the murder weapon and cleaning products had to be questioned. Her father, Brian, testified that his daughter's mental health had started to decline and deteriorate after she told her parents she was going to the police about several alleged sexual assaults. Upon hearing this, it was the only time that Anne showed any reaction in court and burst into tears. Brian said that one night she called him, begging him to come home. When he got there, she was hysterical and all the cupboard doors in the house were open or torn off. She couldn't talk, eventually writing on a piece of paper that she had been molested. She said that she had been assaulted by one of her coaches and this had ended her future sports career. She said she had also been assaulted by her ex-boyfriend, claims he vehemently denied in court. When she reported these incidents to the police, they had big concerns about her mental health and her cases were put on hold. 
Her father said she had even accused him of assault. She said when she realised it wasn't true, she said, what's wrong with me? It feels so real. Brian said she was convinced her family were trying to poison her and that people were breaking into her room while she slept. She was later diagnosed with bipolar disorder and psychotic symptoms. While in the treatment facility just before she moved into the apartment block, professionals inside said she would go from punching walls and being aggressive to laughing and joking with them. They really didn't know what mood she was going to be in, hour to hour. Whilst Anne had been in the women's correctional facility in Clarenville awaiting trial, an informant had recorded a lot of their conversations. In one, Anne made up a rhyme, singing Goodnight Marcel and laughing about it. The prosecution were left disappointed when most of these recordings were actually excluded and not allowed into evidence. The judge said they didn't have any relevance and would have an excessive prejudicial impact on the jury. This was a big blow for the prosecution, as they argued it was completely relevant to the case. After a month-long trial, it was now up to the jury, and people really had no idea as to which way it would go. Anne Norris was found not criminally responsible. Marcel's brother stormed out of the courtroom as the rest of his family cried. One journalist in the courtroom said the verdict of not criminally responsible was so rare, it really did shock people, as so much has to be proven for this to be the case. And alongside her own admissions, it seemed to be quite a strange verdict. Following the verdict, the board had three options for those who were found not criminally responsible. An absolute discharge a conditional discharge, or detention, with or without conditions. Anne was placed in psychiatric care, and it will be down to the Newfoundland and Labrador Criminal Mental Disorder Review Board's discretion as to when she is released. Well, obviously we're... You know, we thought it was the right result. That's what we are here for in the first place. Um, certainly, I wouldn't consider it a victory. It's still a not criminally responsible verdict. It's uh, it's not a, a win by any you know standard, but it's what we hoped for. It's what we thought was the right result. Do you think these were very tough uh, issues for this jury to try and decide? Uh, I think they were very tough issues. I think the jury did an amazing job. They were obviously very uh, dedicated, they paid a lot of attention, they asked very smart questions, they were, um, I think they took their role very seriously, um, and I think it was difficult for them to make the decision. These are difficult issues with, uh, with no easy answers, and I think uh, the jury has uh, looked at it and they came up with an opportunity responsible verdict. It has to be asked, you know, what, because there have been a lot of discussions with the law on here, uh, what, what's, what's the likelihood of, of an appeal? Well, as you know, it's way too early to uh, assess that situation now. We've just got the verdict. We have our 30 days to look at uh, whether appeal is proper and necessary. We'll review the uh, way the trial unfolded and discuss uh, with myself and co-counsel and uh, with our uh, appeal section, and we'll look at whether or not an appeal is necessary or justified. So that's a decision for another day. Less than four months after his testimony against Anne, Kevin O'Brien was found dead in St John's Harbour. Police said they did not suspect any foul play, noting his addiction problems, saying they thought he likely fell in and drowned.
The prosecution filed an appeal against the verdict with the Supreme Court of Newfoundland and Labrador, stating that evidence was improperly excluded from the trial. The judging panel found that whilst it was an error to exclude the evidence, it would have no effect on the jury's decision. They also upheld the decision to disallow the audio recording from inside her cell. It was ruled that there was no basis for a new trial. Still fighting at the end of 2019, the Crown then took their appeal to the highest court in the country, the Supreme Court of Canada. But again, it was dismissed right away, and the Supreme Court gave no reason as to why. Anne has never said what really transpired between the pair, and her defence team say she might not even ever remember. Everybody will always be left guessing. Marcel was laid to rest with his beloved mother Evelyn, lying side by side. Jacqueline said she always looks at a picture that Marcel gave to her. It is of a bridge over a peaceful lake at sunrise. When he gave it to her, he said, this should remind you that everything is water under the bridge. Just let things go. Something she tries to live by for his sake and memory, but with the feeling of no justice being served. To let it go is a bitter pill to swallow. Marcel's life had been spiralling and he was struggling to claw things back, but he was trying. His family said Marcel would have given you the shirt off his back and done anything for anyone. He wanted to get better for his family and it is tragic to think that his life was ended before he even had a chance to make the changes. He told people he so desperately wanted to. (laughs) 